I love waking up every morning with just so much energy um, because I'm just so excited about what we are doing and what we do and the people we get to work with. And there are, there are hard moments and we've had a lot of them in the past few years. The thing I love about our group is that no one's precious. Like everyone will just do what needs to be done. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Adversity is an understatement for many over the last few years. And for hospitality, there are still hurdles and challenges that lie ahead. But for some, COVID had silver linings, an opportunity to look for possibilities rather than dwell on problems. There have been some real success stories that are taking the industry into a new era. James Thorpe is the CEO and owner of the Odd Culture Group in Sydney. James, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Good. It's been a pretty turbulent couple of years, but you've um, been a really positive group and made some interesting moves during this time. What's it been like for you? Um, I mean, the last two years have been, you know, hellish in a number of ways. Um, but uh, in a number of other ways, COVID kind of set our group on fire um, in the sense that at the start of the pandemic, we had two venues and now we have six. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I don't mean that to downplay how awful it's been because it has been awful and myself and our team here have worked harder than, you know, we've ever worked in our lives and we're all in desperate need of a holiday, which hopefully is coming up this year at some point. <laughs> the success stories and COVID has all been about adapting and surviving and um, getting stronger and finding possibilities. That t- tell us about that sort of the possibilities and the way that you approached uh, the pandemic and the impact that it was having on your group. Um, so at the top of the pandemic in that, you know, Sunday night in March of 2020 when Gladys um, got up and announced that, you know, the world was changing and um, we were moving into a new era. We honestly, and and I thought that our industry was finished, that we were done for, that the business was um, down in flames. And uh, it was at that sort of moment that we were like, well, if we start with that as our presupposition that everything's sort of fucked and the business is gone, uh, and our industry's gone, then uh, we, first of all, we need to do everything that we can to support the amazing people who work for us. Um, and the way that we did that was by, I mean, everyone knew that something was coming before that press conference on Sunday night. So we, we spent um, a good amount of time in the days leading up consulting with liquor and gaming on exactly what we could do with our hotel license. We, we called them up actually and we just said, you know, can we deliver cocktails to people's front doors? Can we, can we, you know, pour shots for people on their doorstep? Can we, you know, and, and, and what, what, what came out of it was that the hotel licenses that it's, it's sort of a big gray area with off premise sales. And they basically said you can do it. The only condition at the time was that um, in New South Wales, the RSA transaction happens with the end customer, which is why you haven't seen alcohol on platforms like Deliveroo and Uber Eats until very recently. 
whoever serves the alcohol to the end customer has to have RSA certification until recently. Whereas in Victoria, um, you, you know, you would have seen alcohol delivery on those platforms for a long time, you know, because the transaction happens with the, with the rider and that's it. So, um, you know, we had all of these staff who suddenly were about to not have jobs um, <clears throat> and they all had their RSA. So what we did over the weekend was build this, um, this uh, you know, pickup and delivery system that w didn't use the, the big marketing companies like Uber Eats and uh, Deliveroo. So it was open source. It was using even our own payment gateway. So the business was getting 100% of what was um, of, of the revenue coming in. <clears throat> um, obviously, the big risk with that is that you know, Uber Eats and Deliveroo are at the core marketing companies. So you pay for your venue to pop up when someone's sitting at home and thinking about what to eat. So when you build your own system, the marketing is completely on you. Um, and so we built this system. Everyone on that Monday was like, do I come up? Do we come to work? Do we not? And we're like, yep, everyone's coming to work. And we 100% thought it was going to fail because, you know, we're out there in some corner of the internet with our own system, um, you know, like waiting for orders to come in. Uh, me, and, me and my partner built this thing and we've, we put printers in the kitchens and like I iPad ready to go. And um, we at the same time had signed, just signed before the pandemic this big digital marketing contract and they kind of came to us and were like, you know, if you guys want to bail on this, that's totally fine. We we're like, no, we don't actually. We want you to put everything we have into promoting this platform through Facebook and Instagram. And the first day we launched, there wasn't much movement. But the second day, orders started trickling in. And by the Friday, the pub was the, – the pub that we started it at, the Oxford Tavern in Petersham, was – uh, you know, doing about 80% of its regular revenue. And by the following week, it was trading harder than it actually traded with the doors open before COVID. All out of a tiny kitchen. Um, and uh, with our bartenders and me and Jenna, who's now our group general manager, all driving orders to people's houses um, with the incredible cocktails and, you know, interesting wines and big, you know, we were like, oh, you know, these plastic jugs of beer, fuck, we don't need them anymore. The pub's never coming back. So we just delivered them to people's houses. They were like, do you want these back? And we're like, oh, no, it's all right. But you can keep it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it was a really emotional experience for us, for me and my partner and the senior managers. And it still sort of brings a tear to my eye thinking about it because we were all just standing in this kitchen thinking, this is, this is like a, this is a joke. Like we're all here. I was like, we're going to all be here until there's no money left in the bank account. And then we're going home. But uh, it just worked. Like we pulled it off. And the end result was we did not stand a single employee down at all during that first lockdown. Every one of our staff had their jobs for the whole period all the way through. Granted, we were doing very different things. Um, so my partner, who is um, now our group people and culture manager, he was running the pass in the kitchen, in the, on the kitchen side, 
you know, boxing up orders. Um, Jenna was driving. I was, I was driving and running the pass on the other side. You know, we had bartenders and managers. We even hired e-bikes for those who couldn't drive. So they had something to do. <laughs> it was a wild time. It was, it was the hardest I've ever worked. And I think we were the only ones in Sydney who were able to knock off at the end of the night and drink tap beer at the time, which everyone was really jealous of. <laughs> <laughs> This sort of scenario and the impact that it had, did, did that affect the way that you approached new venues and the way that you operate since then? Um, the pivoting thing is tough because we're, we did it and we're good at it and we've become very good at, at it in the last two years, but it is very disruptive to your core business. What I'm really loving at the moment is that and touch wood where, where the, the scene in Sydney has kind of gotten back to this point of like real norm normalcy. Like you want consistency. You don't want ups and downs in when you're running a business, you just want consistent forecastability with trade. And we're, we're getting back to that point now. Um, the pandemic is incredibly disruptive to that. So, um, Yes, while all of our businesses, we, we did future-proof them, the new ones that we brought on. Um, and a, a really beautiful thing that happened was that we, um, we actually opened a bottle shop. We, we leased the premises and applied for a package liquor license and opened a bottle shop so that we can diversify our, in, our revenue streams. Um, and it was interesting. Uh, I mean, that, that bottle shop was open through some of the – COVID craziness last year was very interesting to see when consumer confidence goes down because there's like a COVID scare and people are staying at home, that bottle shop, the revenue started increasing, whereas it decreases at the on-premise outlets. So in that sense it has, but I'm really looking forward to just, you know, getting back to like 2019 normal, you know? <laughs> You mentioned that the group has grown from two venues to six. Give it, give us a picture of the group. What venues have you got at the moment? So we have the um, Oxford Tavern in Petersham. We've got the Duke in Enmore, uh, the old Fitzroy in Woolloomooloo. We've got Odd Culture Newtown, um, which is on King Street in the old Happy Chef premises. Uh, and we have a bottle shop further up the street on King Street. Um, we, uh, just got into council for a new project as well. And there's something else that we'll be able to announce shortly as well. But I think certain people would get upset with me if I gave more information than that <laughs> at this stage. Well, I won't press you on that, but down the track, we'll talk a bit more about the offerings and how different they are and, and, and the group, but Take me back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play in your family? Um, my parents were both the, the children of Baptist parents and my dad's parents were missionaries in Papua New Guinea. So they both came from pretty poor backgrounds. Um, but uh, dad actually kind of pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He's a very, very clever man, my dad. Um he became an airline pilot through a cadetship, like back in the day when you didn't need a 10-year, $500,000 degree to become an airline pilot. Um, 
and uh, got got a, a job as an airline pilot for Qantas, which he, um, you know, had a 30-year career with Qantas. So mum and dad went from from their, from that sort of situation to having, you know, being comfortable, having money. But our childhood was very much influenced by theirs, I guess. The sort of meals that we would enjoy and love and cook at home were sort of depression era casseroles and tuna mornay and like baked beans on toast. And so it's not that we, it's not that we couldn't afford to eat differently. It's just that we loved like that. That was what, you know, mum and dad ate when they were growing up and that's what they loved to eat. Like casseroles with a can of tomato soup in them, things like that, you know? Um, so, I mean, I, I didn't really grow up around really fine food or good food. Um, it was a passion that I sort of developed later on and I didn't actually really grow up particularly experienced to alcohol either. I mean, being from, it's not that it was ever something that was, was bad in our house. It's just like my dad doesn't really drink and mum doesn't, you know, doesn't really drink either. So it wasn't really, wasn't really a thing. It was really in my early hospitality career that I really latched on to, to good food and drinks. When you finished school, was a career in hospitality something that you embarked on straight away or did that come on later on? Uh, that was later. I joined a band actually out of school and moved to America for two or three years um, and toured, toured around in America and slept on people's couches and in a bus with, you know, 10 stinky dudes every night. <laughs> so, no, that wasn't um, – and, and sort of that turned into – that turned into an interest in tour management, so artist management, travelling with bands and managing their day-to-day, which if you think about it is not – that far away from what you do as a bar manager, you know, dealing with drunk, dealing with drunk idiots, um, making sure people pay for things when they say that they were going to and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so no, uh, my foray, um, into hospitality came much later. Uh, cause I, it, it was a, it was a Christian band actually. Um, cause I was raised as a Christian and I, um, sort of came to a point where I was like, you know, if this thing's true, being Christianity, it's going to bear itself out in, um, in history and in philosophy. And so I, I started studying while I was on tour. I did a year of distance um, learning in a, in a, in a Christian um, studies in religion and philosophy degree, you know, that I did, I did at Starbucks before and after shows. Um <laughs> sort of thinking that, you know, if this thing's true, there's going to be evidence in history and there's going to be a good philosophical basis for it. And unfortunately, I found that that wasn't the case and I lost my faith and moved back home and continued studying at the University of Sydney um, in philosophy, metaphysics, philosophy of physics and early Christianity. Um, And got a job as a glassy because the government support when you're doing study in Sydney, it's just fucking, it's terrible. Um, you get the same, you get the same rent assistance if you live in Sydney 
as if you live in, you know, Bathurst. So, uh, you know, paying Sydney rents, I'm like, I have to get a job. Um, so I got a job as a glassy at a pub in the city. And by the time I finished my um, honours year in, in philosophy and um, metaphysics, I had an offer in hand to, to do my postgraduate work um, to do a postgraduate degree, so a PhD at Oxford in the UK. Um, but I just I had a really good think about it and I, there was just something about hospitality, about kicking around kegs and creating experiences for people that I really loved. And I made what at the time seemed like a really dumb decision. Uh, but in hindsight, you know, <laughs> like I wanted to be an academic and the last two years, it's possibly one of the worst professions that someone could have is being an academic <laughs> during COVID and during the long reign of the, you know, federal liberal government. Um, it's so, I, I feel, you know, I feel like I've, I've ended up making the right choice, but I took a full-time job. I turned that offer down, took a full-time job as a seller manager at that pub in the city. Yeah. In, in those early days when you made that move and that decision to be in hospitality, what, what were the venues and, and influences on you that sort of helped carve a path for you in the industry? Um, so the, the pub that I had my first full-time job in was the Art House in the CBD um, of Sydney. Um, and that venue is really interesting because it has a 24-hour development consent. Um, at the time I was working there, it, had a 24-hour liquor license, but then the lockouts were introduced. So it could trade for 24 hours, but it could only serve alcohol until three. Um, it had a fine dining restaurant. Uh, it had a um, – like a, it was a pub, so people went there for after-work drinks and Friday lunch, but it also traded as a nightclub on the weekends. So I kind of got um, a, a, a taste of every – part of the industry in that sense. Um, and it would also do, you know, a, quite a bit of revenue and functions and events and had like a whole functions team. So I went from um, being a glassy there to being a duty manager and then took that full-time job as a seller manager, uh, assistant venue manager, operations manager, um, which I, you know, I, I learned how to, you know, run a service in a restaurant. I learned how to plan a function. I learned how to run compliance in a nightclub and some of the starkest memories, <laughs> compliance issues that I've experienced happened at that place. Um, there was one night in particular, you know, we used to have this club that would trade till six in the morning um, on a Saturday night. It was the night of Mardi Gras and we had about, probably about a thousand people in the venue when the ground floor is only licensed for 500. Um, I wasn't the licensee at the time, so you can't give me a hard time for this. But um, <laughs> we had a fight break out in there and it turns out they were all bikies who weren't wearing colours. Uh, and because it was Mardi Gras, there were police on every intersection in the CBD. So one of them walked past and saw this happening. We had like 15 guards on, so it was being taken care of. Um, he must have raised the alarm. And next thing we know, the police order riot squad turns up, in like six of those black four-wheel drives, and they all 
into the building with their hands on each other's backs like that in formation. We ended up with the superintendent coming down, shutting us down. The venue got a, a strike on its liquor license, all of this horrible stuff, you know. <laughs> Not the greatest end to a shift. What was your first foray into sort of owning your own your own pub? Um, I was working as an operations manager at the Newtown Hotel in Newtown underneath Jenna Phillips, uh, who was my GM, who's now now works for the group as our group general manager. Um, so we were working there together and um, the group that owned that place at the time was not particularly well run and um, – it was their only venue in Sydney, so they were they were trying to run a venue by distance, and it just didn't really work. Um, but Jenna and I had a really good dynamic, and we still do. That's why I clawed her back to work for us all these years later. Um, that 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 dynamic between the GM and and their offsider is so important. You know, it's really important to have that that teamship in the very senior roles, whether it's in a a pub or a restaurant or a bar or a kitchen, you know, your, your head chef and your sous chef, your restaurant manager and your assistant restaurant manager. It's so important that you've got a bit of a dynamic happening there. And we did. And that pub was really, really successful. And to be quite honest with you, I, I thought I knew everything at the time because I had had this grand elevation and had ascended through the ranks fairly quickly. Um, and I just thought that I, knew everything and that I could do this better. And I was, you know, sick of making disgusting amounts of money for a business that didn't particularly like me in the first place, to be honest. <laughs> um, so, and, and, and I, w- I was tired of dealing with poker machines. Every pub that I had worked at had gaming machines and the, at the art house, it was the worst because they had like 31 machines. So you'd get to the end of this, really intense club night that finishes at six, everyone's out by seven. You've got to count 10 wet tills because it's a club and all the money's wet, which is great. But then after you've done all of that, you've got to go into the gaming room and empty 30 machines and then count all them. You know, it's just like we, there were, there were days that we would get out of that cash up at like 11 or 12. There were days that, there was a McDonald's across the road, and in those days, you couldn't get McDonald's breakfast after 10.30. And the amount of times that we got out so late that we actually missed McDonald's breakfast, which was always really upsetting. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, like I, I just hated them. I just – Newtown Hotel had like a small gaming room, and it was just – it was so much work, and it wasn't even that much revenue at that place. And I was just like, you know – this just sucks. So I got a, um, I got a loan from the bank and I bought our first or my first venue, um, which was the tap house in Darlinghurst. Yeah, that was my, um, that was my first foray into ownership. And of course, immediately I realized that I actually didn't know everything and felt, felt the crushing weight of, being an owner <laughs> um, and was like, oh, fuck, what have I done, you know? Uh, but, you know, here we are now. <laughs> one, of, one of the interesting things about 
your venues is that you seek really talented chefs um, and you're running pubs without pokies. Tell, tell us about what it's like, you know, running a pub without pokies and bringing in the likes of Anna Ugard or James McDonald, both amazing chefs. Um, I mean, it, it really comes from the facts that in New South Wales, we have this obsession with gaming machines. Um, and you know, you've said that you've said the poker machine word. So now you're going to hear my whole rant on gaming machines. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Been triggered. Um, so in Sydney, we have this really unique circumstance where we have the second highest concentration of gaming machines per capita, second to Las Vegas. And every pub has them and they haven't always been there, even though people who are my age, um, don't know what a pub is without pokies because it was a fixture of sort of the eighties and nineties. Um, but what, what sort of ended up happening there is that where the focus used to be on, on your two profit centers being food and beverage, they've actually been supplanted by a third profit center, um, being gaming. And in a lot of pubs in Sydney, in fact, I would almost say in the majority of pubs, at least in certain areas in Sydney, food and beverage have become subservient to gaming machine revenue. And so you have things like, um, you know, as a young pub manager learning how to run a gaming room, there are certain things that, you know, is going to yield, you know, good, good player rates for you. Things like having VV and Reshes on tap and, um, and to his new and having it really nice and cheap, um, having the lights not too bright, having the music on the machines really loud, having um, really cheap, like approachable pub food. So you want like your $12 steaks and you want your your $12 schnitzels and burgers and stuff like that, all of which is like just objectively bad for everyone involved, you know. Like it's bad for the people who – it's bad for the farmers and the, the producers of the food because – they're having to participate in a race to the bottom on, on cogs. It's bad for the pubs because you have chefs and, and beverage staff who don't really believe in what they're doing and who are just making, you know, <laughs> cheap steaks ad infinitum all day. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's bad for the customer because they don't get to experience like the joys of eating really good quality food. You know, and Sydney has this obsession with that. And so part of my, you know, starting our business and our opposition to gaming machines and that we don't operate them and we never will is let's get back to what being a pub used to be about. And that's not actually necessarily chicken palmies and cheap pints of beer, you know. Like if you look around the world at at, at the great pubs and bars elsewhere that aren't in New South Wales, even in, in even as you mentioned uh, before our call, even in places like the ACT, um, you know, the, the, the quality is just better because there isn't this, this third profit center niggling around in people's minds and forecasts and outlooks, you know? Um, so we were like, if we want to do this properly and we want to be one of the only operators who don't, have gaming machines in their pubs, let's get back to what being in a pub should be about, which is, you know, a place to relax, a place to experience things, a place to 
uh, blow off steam, you know, um, and we, you know, the contrarian in me was also like, you know, let's just throw the whole playbook out. Let's hire a, you know, the, and how the discussion with Anna came about was just, you know, Anna is, is one of the best chefs in Australia without a doubt. And she doesn't come from anything within QE of pubs. You know, I, you spoke with her on the podcast a couple of years ago, I think. Um, she's got a fine dining background. Um, she's also a latecomer to the industry, like I am as well. And Anna's become one of my very close friends. We have a lot, lot in common. Um, and we basically said to her, look, if you take this on, there, there are no rules. There are, there are no rules. There, the only rules that there are is that, um, you know, we, we operate our business within commercial benchmarks. So you've got KPIs around, you know, food cogs and wages like any restaurant, bar, pub does. Um, but, you know, go nuts. And she was kind of like, so, you know, I don't need to have a schnitzel on the menu. We're like, nah, you do, you do what you want. And I said, you know, my – my promise to you, Anna, is you will never hear me tell you what to cook or what not to cook, ever. Um, and I never have. What makes a great pub for you? <clears throat> um, oh, what makes a great pub? It's kind of one of those things that's hard to define, you know? Like you walk into a place like the Old Fits and you just sort of like understand what it is. Um it's something to do with the atmosphere. It's something to do it, – like it's all, it's all these little pieces coming together. It's like the atmosphere, the decor, um, you know, good quality beers on tap, good food, good music. Like it's, it's this really special thing when all of that stuff comes together in the one piece, in the, in, <clears throat> in the one place. You mentioned that um, Sydney's becoming quite vibrant and moving back towards some sort of normalcy. Um, how do you see the the pub culture moving forward? Do you think there's an opportunity for a lot of change here and an evolution for that? Um, I do, and I think one silver lining of COVID is that um, a lot of that race to the bottom that we saw. That, and I don't want to misrepresent us. Like we're, we've been a party to that in the past. Like we have done cheap steaks, and we've done. We even had two for one meals in one of our venues at a certain time. And the COVID was a really good reset for that. You would notice that a lot of the operators that were really driving that race to the bottom aren't there anymore. Um, and the ones who are there who maybe did used to participate in that, when they came back, particularly after that first lockdown, they came back without any of those deals. They were kind of like got to, got to a point where we are now where we're like, if you're not willing to spend probably 35, 40 bucks, then don't come to the pub. Don't do it. Stay at home, you know, um, because – pubs in particular in Sydney because of rising property prices, we have operated with our margins on a knife's edge for so long. And from, you know, my people I know in the industry at the start of that first lockdown, we were all kind of like, shit, there is barely any money in the bank at all. You know, whereas other industries weren't affected in that way. 
you know, we, the, the, the people at least who I um, am close with who are venue owners, we all do it because we love food and beverage. Like none of us are looking for a big payday or anything like that, um, which I think is part of why it was allowed to persist for so long. But we've just drawn a line in the sand with that. We're like, we don't, we don't do discounting really. Um, because we want to have the best staff. We want to have the best produce. We want to have the best food and drinks and we want to have the best venues. And that comes at quite a high cost to us in Sydney. And if you're not willing to pay what you should to support an industry that operates in that environment, then you shouldn't go to the pub. You should stay at home and cook something for yourself. <laughs> as harsh as that sounds. <laughs> You have the pub venues, but you, you opened Odd Culture in in Newtown in a former sort of everyday uh, restaurant, uh, Happy Chef. T- tell us about Odd Culture. Odd Culture came about because, um, <clears throat> well, first of all, Odd Culture was actually a bar inside the tap house that we opened in 2018. Um, Jordan Blackman uh, came on as our bar manager uh, and Jordan is now our group beverage manager. Um, and he uh, came actually <laughs> came back to work for us to launch the uh, the Newtown Odd Culture, which was really, really like a, a beautiful moment there. Um, the whole original team coming back to work on it. It was a bar in the tap house that was designed to focus on um, this common thread between beer and wine around fermentation. So the concept is fermentation. It's sort of about wine, you know, wine being made with minimal intervention techniques is pretty well established um, in Australia, you know, natural wine. Um, But there's this common thread in beer as well, beer that's been uh, made using ancient beer-making techniques, you know, um, wild and mixed fermentation, uh, you know, the the sort of thing where they'll throw open the windows and inoculate the beer with the wild yeast that's floating around in the air and you get this sense of terroir, this sense of a beer tasting from a place, not because of necessarily the raw ingredients but because it tastes like the the place that it was – inoculated, if you know what I mean, Um, which was really striking (laughs) to actually see some of these places because in 2018, we took – sorry, 2019, we uh, took a bunch of our team over to Belgium, which is sort of like the mecca of this sort of stuff, and visited all of these grand old breweries like Cantillon and Boone and Roddenbach and, you know, the like – Cantillon's some of the most sought after, you know, uh, lambic beer in the world. And it's sort of in this dingy rundown part of Brussels. And you're like, really? This is what this beer tastes like? <laughs> it's not like an open, beautiful field or anything. It's like a, you know, a, a loading dock and a pile of garbage on the street. <laughs> Yet they throw open the windows and, you know, let the wild yeast blow in and and they get this beautiful beer so newtown newtown was was supposed to be the the full expression of that so rather than being in a little 80 seat bar inside the tap house 
Um, we we punched hard on all fronts there. So it's designed to be one of the best craft beer bars in Australia. It's designed to be one of the best places to, to drink natural wine. It's designed to be one of the best restaurants in Australia with, with the chefs um, hitting on fermentation as a concept um, as well. And it's just become this really beautiful, well-loved spot in Newtown that's actually resonated with the locals in a way that we didn't expect. You've created this really dynamic and soulful pub group. Um, what do you love about what you do? I just, I love the people that we work with. We talk about this a little bit at the moment in the office. I love waking up every morning with just so much energy um, because I'm just so excited about what we are doing and what we do and the people we get to work with. And there are, there are hard moments and we've had a lot of them in the past few years. Like it sort of was really weird and uncomfortable in um, July of last year when uh, we were in lockdown again and just seeing some of the best chefs in Australia, people like Hannah Ugarte and James McDonald um, and Jesse Walkington crammed into the kitchen of the Oxford Tavern making like, you know, a thousand burgers <laughs> together, <laughs> just getting us through, you know, like, which, cause everyone, the thing I love about our group is that no one's precious. Like everyone will just do what needs to be done. That's not to say that that's where we like to operate, but when shit happens, like, you know, Anna was just like, yeah, fuck, that sounds great. I'll go and slice up brisket and, you know, like, for, for for three months in the kitchen at, at another place. And, you know, um, I love the people that we work with. They're all really special, unique, uh, unique people. Well, James, it's incredible what you've created and very much looking forward to seeing what you create from here on. We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Uh, please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.